Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac podcast, the podcast of legends. We're talking about chapter 99, and then we're going to be reading chapter one bloody hundred. What will he do next? Yesterday's discussion prompt was very generic, and today's discussion prompt is very generic. I feel like you could apply these discussion prompts to every chapter in this whole book. Uh, but hey, nevertheless, those were the discussion prompts. Um, interesting thing, to find the place on the chapter, I searched for just the last few words of yesterday's chapter to find the place again, which I just searched for prevent himself from crying, which was sort of the last four words of the chapter. And that string of words had turned up three times previously in the book. Sorry, two times previously in the book. This was the third time that he said to prevent himself from crying. I thought that was kind of interesting. That's a lot of times for someone to, you know, try to prevent themselves from crying in one book. Swim said the mum of fishy said this, I had a eureka moment last night. Philip's present money troubles were foreshadowed by his mother. She did not know how to manage money. Philip was left with only £2,000. Note, £2,000 was about £260,000 back then. I'm fairly sure she would have squandered it all the way if she had lived. I still don't understand. Like, that's a lot of money by any standard. That's um, oh, £260,000 is, I think, nearly 500000 Australian dollars. It's half a million dollars. I just feel like he could pretty much have done whatever he wanted from there. Um, alas, Philip did not know how to manage money. Now it is all gone and it didn't have to be this way. Drives me nuts and also breaks my heart. So many times I have wanted to reach into this book and shake him until his teeth rattled. Two ways this book can go now. Philip keeps spiralling downward until he is dead. Or he pulls himself up by his bootstraps and gets on with life after learning some valuable lessons. Entropa said this, The author is merciless. I love it. Tear your main character into pieces. Take away everything and watch him learn as he hopefully puts himself back together in better, happier, as a better, happier, wiser human. This is what I want, sorry, this is what I need to do to my main character in my fantasy story. I knew something important was missing, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Thanks, Somerset. Um, yeah, the one thing I would say about this character is um, Philip is not very likable. Um, and that's a big risk with a book. You, you always divide your readers if you make a not likable main character. I've done it in two of my novels the main character has been not likable and I do it because I think it makes them interesting and I also like to take an unlikable person and then sort of unravel them and try to figure out why they're that way but you will get less positive reviews if you do that because people some people will give a, a book a bad review just because they didn't like the main character that's kind of one of their main criteria for if they like a book or not and so it's a big cross against that book if the character is unlikable. So um, there you go. There's my word of caution. If you're thinking of Somerset's Philip as a character, well, you know, if that's like you're saying, him being torn to pieces and everything taken away from him, um, 
that all sounds very good. But if you're going to follow Philip's lead and be a total unlikable person, then um, yeah, just just tread with caution. That's all I'd say. Or just be prepared that some people will dislike your book. Some people will dislike this book of human bondage just because they don't like the main character. Anywho, uh, I think we should read chapter one hundred. Um, sorry for saying hundredo. Let's just continue though. Saturday. That's a one-word sentence. Saturday. Full stop. It was the day on which he had promised to pay his landlady. He had been expecting something to turn up all through the week. He had found no work. He had never been driven to extremities before, but he was so dazed. Extremities? Aren't extremities like fingers and toes? He had never been driven to extremities before, and he was so dazed that he did not know what to do. He had at the back of his mind a feeling that the whole thing was a preposterous joke. He had no more than a few coppers left. He had sold all the clothes he could do without. He had some books and one or two odds and ends upon which he might have got a shilling or two, but the landlady was keeping an eye on his comings and goings. He was afraid she would stop him if, she, if he took anything from his room. The only thing was to tell her that he could not pay his, his bill. He had not the courage. It was the middle of June. The night was fine and warm. He made his, up his mind to stay out. He walked slowly along the Chelsea embankment, because the river was restful and quiet, till he was tired, and then sat on the bench and dozed. He did not know how long he slept. He awoke with a start, dreaming that he was being shaken by a policeman and told to move on, but when he opened his eyes, he found himself alone. He walked on. He did not know why, and at last came to Chiswick, where he slept again. Presently, the hardness of the bench roused him. The night seemed very long. He shivered. He was seized with a sense of misery, and he did not know what on earth to do. He was ashamed at having slept on the embankment. It seemed peculiarly humiliating, and he felt his cheeks flush in the darkness. He remembered stories he had heard of those who did not, who did, and how among them were officers, clergymen, and men who had been to universities, he wondered if he would become one of them, standing in a line to get soup from a charitable institution. It would be much better to commit suicide. He could not go on like that. Lawson would help him when he knew what straits he was in. It was absurd to let his pride prevent him from asking for assistance. He wondered why he had come such a cropper. He had always tried to do what he thought best, and everything had gone, hor gone wrong. He had helped people when he could. He did not think he had been more selfish than anyone else. It seemed horribly unjust that he should be reduced to such a pass. But it was no good thinking about it. He walked on. It was now light. The river was beautiful in the silence, and there was something mysterious in the early day. It was going to be very fine, and the sky, pale in the dawn, was cloudless. He felt very tired, and hunger was gnawing at his entrails, but he could not sit still. He was constantly afraid of being spoken to by a policeman. He dreaded the mortification of that. He felt dirty and wished he could have a wash. At last he found himself at Hampton Court. He felt that if he did not have something to eat, he would cry. He chose a cheap eating house and went in. There was a smell of hot things and it made him feel slightly sick. He meant to eat something nourishing enough to keep up for the rest of the day, but his stomach revolted at the sight of food. He had a cup of tea and some bread and butter. He remembered then that it was Sunday and he could go to the 
Athelney's. He thought of the roast beef and the Yorkshire pudding they would eat, but he was fearfully tired and could not face the happy, noisy family. He was feeling morose and wretched. He wanted to be left alone. He made up his mind that he would go into the gardens of the palace and lie down. His bones ached. He, perhaps he would find a pump so that he could wash his hands and face and drink something. He was very thirsty, and now that he was no longer hungry, he thought with pleasure of the flowers and the lawns and the great leafy trees. He felt there, that there he could think out better what he must do. He, he lay on the grass in the shade and lit his pipe. For economy's sake, he had for a long time confined himself to two pipes a day. He was thankful now that his pouch was full. He did not know what people did when they had no money. Presently he fell asleep. When he awoke, it was nearly midday, and he thought that soon he must be setting out for London so as to be there in the early morning and answer any advertisements that, which seemed to, to promise. He thought of his uncle, who had told him that he would leave him at his death the little he had. Philip did not in the least know how much this was. It could not be more than a few hundred pounds. He wondered whether he could raise money on the reversion, not without the old man's consent, and that he would never give. The only thing I can do is to hang on somewhere till he dies. Philip reckoned his age, the vicar of Blackstable was well over seventy. He had chronic bronchitis, but many old men had that, and lived on indefinitely. Meanwhile, something must turn up. Philip could not get away from the feeling that his position was altogether abnormal. People in his position particular station did not starve it was because he could do he could not bring himself to believe in the reality of his experience that he did not give way to utter despair he made up his mind to borrow half a sovereign from lawson he stayed in the garden all day and smoked when he felt very hungry he did not mean to eat anything until he was setting out again for london it was a long way and he must keep up his strength for that he started when the day began to grow cold, cooler and slept on benches when he was tired no one disturbed him. He had a wash and a brush-up and a shave at Victoria, some tea and bread and butter, and while he was eating this, read this read the advertisement column, columns of the morning paper. As he looked down from his eye fell upon an announcement asking for a salesman in the furnishing drapery department of some well-known stores. He had a curious little sinking of the heart, for with his middle-class prejudices it seemed dreadful to go into a shop. But he shrugged his shoulders. After all, what did it matter? And he made up his mind to have a shot at it. He had a queer feeling that by accepting every humiliation, by going out to meet it even, he was forcing the hand of fate. When he presented himself, feeling horribly shy in the department at nine o'clock, he found that many others were there before him. They were of all ages, from boys of sixteen to men of forty. Some were talking to one another in undertones, but most were silent, and when he took up his place, those around him gave him a look of hostility. He heard one man say, The only thing I look forward to is getting my refusal soon enough to give me time to look elsewhere. The man standing next to him glanced at Philip and said, Had any experience? No, said Philip. He paused a moment and then had a, made a remark, Even the smaller houses won't see you without appointment after lunch. Philip looked at the assistants. Some were draping chintzes and crentones. The others, his neighbour, told him, were preparing country orders that had come in by post. At about a quarter past nine, the buyer arrived. He heard one of the men who were waiting say that another that it was Mr. Gibbons. He was middle-aged, short and corpulent, with a black beard and dark, greasy hair. He had brisk movements and a clever face. He wore a silk hat and a frock coat, the lapel of which was adorned with a white 
geranium surrounded by leaves. He went into his office, leaving the door open. It was very small and contained only an American roll desk in the corner, a bookcase and a cupboard. The men standing outside watched him mechanically take the geranium out of his coat and put it in an ink pot filled with water. It was against the rules to wear flowers in business. During the day, the department men who wanted to keep in with the governor admired the flower. I've never seen better, they said. You didn't grow it yourself. Yes, I did, he smiled, and a gleam of pride filled his intelligent eyes. He took off his hat and changed his coat, glanced at the letters, and then at the men who were waiting to see him. He made a slight sign with one finger, and the first in the queue stepped into the office. They filed past him one by one and answered his questions. He put them very briefly, keeping his eyes fixed on the applicant's face. Age, experience, why did you leave your job? He listened to the replies without expression. When it came to Philip's turn, he fancied that Mr. Gibbons stared at him curiously. Philip's clothes were neat and tolerably cut. He looked a little different from the others. Experience? I'm afraid I haven't any, said Philip. No good. Philip walked out of the office. The ordeal had been so much less painful than he had expected that he felt no particular disappointment. He could hardly hope to succeed in getting a place the first time he tried. He had kept the newspaper and now looked at the advertisements again. A shop in Holborn needed a salesman too, and he went there, but when he arrived he found that someone had already been engaged. If he wanted to get anything to eat that day, he must go to Lawson's studio before he went out to luncheon, so he made a long his way along the Brompton Road to Yeoman's Row. I say I'm rather broke till the end of the month, he said, as soon as he found an opportunity. I wish you'd lend me half a sovereign, will you? It was incredibly, incredible the difficulty he found in asking for money, and he remembered the casual way, as though almost they were conferring a favour, men at the hospital had extracted small stums out of him, which they had no intention of repaying. Like a shot, said, said Lawson. But when he put his hand in his pocket, he found that he had only eight shillings. Philip's heart sank. Oh well, lend me five bob, will you, he said lightly. Here you are. Philip went to the public baths in Westminster and spent sixpence on a bath. Then he got himself something to eat. He did not know what to do with himself in the afternoon. He would not go back to the hospital in case anyone should ask him questions, and besides, he had nothing to do there now. They would wonder in the two or three departments he had worked in why he did not come. But they must think what they chose. It did not matter. He would not be the first student who had dropped out without warning. He went to the free library and looked at the papers till they wearied him. Then he took out Stevenson's New Arabian Nights, but he found he could not read. The words meant nothing to him, and he continued to brood over his helplessness. He kept on thinking the same things all the time, and the, and the fixity of his thoughts made his headache. At last, craving for fresh air, he went into the green park and lay down on the grass. He thought miserably of his deformity, which made it impossible for him to go to war. He went to sleep and dreamt that he was suddenly sound of foot and out at the cape in a regiment of yeomanry. The pictures he had looked at in looked at in the illustrated papers gave materials for his fancy and he saw himself on the veldt in khaki sitting with other men round a fire at night when he awoke he found that it was still quite light and presently he heard big ben strike seven he had twelve hours to get through with nothing to do he dreaded the interminable night the sky was overcast and he feared it would rain he would have to go to a lodging house where he, where he could get a bed 
He had seen them advertised on lamps outside his houses in Lambeth. Good beds, sixpence. He had never been inside one and dreaded the foul smell and the vermin. He made up his mind to stay in the open air if he possibly could. He remained in the park till it was closed and then began to walk about. He was very tired. A thought came to him that an accident would be a piece of luck, so that he would be taken to a hospital and lie there in a clean bed for weeks. At midnight, he was so hungry that he could not go without food any more, so he went to a coffee stall at Hyde Park Corner and ate a couple of potatoes and had a cup of tea. Then he walked again. He felt too restless to sleep, and he had a horrible dread of being moved on by the police. He noted that he was beginning to look upon the constable from quite a new angle. This was the third night he had spent out. Now and then, he sat on the benches in Piccadilly, and towards morning he strolled down to the embankment. He listened to the striking of, bin, of Big Ben, marking every quarter of an hour, and reckoned out how long it left till the city woke again. In the morning he spent a few coppers on making himself neat and clean, bought a paper to read the advertisements, and set out once more on the search for work. He went on in this way for several days. He had very little food, and began to feel weak and ill, so that he had hardly enough energy to go on looking for work, which seemed so desperately hard to find. He was growing used to used now to the long waiting at the back of a shop on the chance that he would be taken on and the curt dismissal. He walked to all parts of London in answer of the advertisements and he came to know by sight men who applied as fruitlessly as himself. One or two tried to make friends with him but he was too tired and too wretched to accept their advances. He did not go on, go any more, more to Lawson because he owed him five shillings. It began to be too dazed to think clearly and ceased very much to care what would happen to him. He cried a good deal. At first he was very angry with himself for this and ashamed, but he found it relieved him and somehow made him feel less hungry. In the very early morning he suffered a good deal from cold. One night he went into his room to change his linen. He slipped in about three when he was quite sure everyone would be asleep and out again at five. He lay on the bed and its softness was enchanting. All his bones ached and as he lay he reveled in the pleasure of it. It was so delicious that he did not want to go to sleep. He was growing used to want of food and did not feel very hungry but only weak. Constantly now at the back of his mind was the thought of doing away with himself but he used all the strength he had not to dwell on it because he was afraid the temptation would get hold of him so that he would not be able to help himself. He kept on saying to himself that it would be absurd to commit suicide since something must be, must happen soon. He could not get over the impression that his situation was too preposterous to, to be taken quite seriously. It was like an illness which must be endured but from which he was bound to recover. Every night he swore that nothing would induce him to put up with such another and determined next morning to write to his uncle or to Mr. Nixon, the solicitor, or to Lawson. But when the time came, he could not bring himself to make the humiliating confession of his utter failure. He did not know how Lawson would take it. In their friendship, Lawson had been scatterbrained, and he had pri prided himself on his common sense. He would have to tell the whole story of his folly. He had an uneasy feeling that Lawson, after helping him, would turn the cold shoulder on him, his uncle and the solicitor would of course do something for him, but he dreaded their reproaches. He did not want anyone to reproach him. He clenched his teeth and repeated that he, that what had happened was inevitable just because it had happened. Regret was absurd. 
The days were unending and the five shillings Lawson had lent him would not last much longer. Philip longed for Sunday to come so that he could go to Athelney's. He did not know what prevented him from going there sooner. Perhaps, except perhaps that he wanted so badly to get through on his own. For Athelney, who had been in straits as desperate, was the only person who could do anything for him. Perhaps after dinner he could bring himself to tell Athelney that he was in difficulties. Philip repeated to himself over and over again that he should what he should say to him. He was dreadfully afraid that Athelney would put him off with airy phrases that would be so horrible that he wanted to delay as long as possible the putting of him to the test. Philip had lost all confidence in his fellows. Saturday night was cold and raw. Philip suffered horribly. From midday on Saturday till he dragged himself wearily to Athelney's house, he ate nothing. He spent his last twopence on Sunday morning on a wash and a brush-up in the lavatory at Charing Cross. There you go, there's that chapter for you, chapter 100. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.